What we're going to do now is we're going into the book of Judges. During the summer, we're going to dive into the book of Judges and cover a few different characters from the book of Judges before we go back into it's probably a book of the New Testament, but I thought it was this would be a great time to take a break for the New Testament and see what we can learn from the Old Testament. And some of those songs really just we'll see that in this message about the lion from the tribe of Judah is the one that delivers us. You'll see that very clear in the book of Judges. And then again, just about trusting God in the midst of what we see physically, right? That's when we stop trusting God is when we start looking around and seeing things that look like real struggles. And and then I'm not saying they're not, but they are. But sometimes we forget about this great and powerful and awesome God that we serve. And, I, and I'm just like you, I, I do the same thing. So I, I pray as we go through the book of Judges over the summer, you will be encouraged and strengthened by God's word and by examples from the Old Testament. Let's pray and ask God to do that this morning. Lord God, we are so thankful to be in a place this morning where we could come and worship you freely and express our love for you. And Lord God, I pray that you would give each and every one of us the strength and the ability to continue to do that when we leave this place, in the midst of our trials and struggles, in the midst of persecution of any kind, Lord God, that we would begin to understand who you are and who we serve and what great things we have and have coming in the future. Help us see that this morning as we look at the book of Judges, and we pray this in Jesus' name, and the church agreed by saying, Amen. We'll open up to Judges chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 21 verses, and we'll skip around within this chapter. So what we're going to do is we're going to begin first by doing a little background of what's going on. What's, what kind of precipitated the author to write the book of Judges? And the book of Judges is kind of a misleading in the sense of the title. The book should really be called the book of deliverers. Because they're not, these men and, and even one woman that we'll look at, they don't judge in the sense of we think of, you know, making judicial decisions on, on right and wrong. Instead, they come and they deliver the nation Israel, or various tribes, I should say, from the predicament they see themselves in. So I think a better name would be the book of deliverers. But we have the book of Judges, just so you understand. In the book of Judges, it takes us through the time period between Joshua and Eli, who's the second to last judge in the book of First Samuel. And so just a brief history on how we get here. So last week, if you were here, you remember we studied Abram and how he received this great promise from God to inherit the land of Canaan. So that was a promise to him and to his descendants. You remember God made that promise to Abram. And so he began his journey from Ur of the Chaldees to the land of Canaan. And if you know the history of the Old Testament, you know due to wide, the widespread famine and the sin of the Canaanites not yet being completed, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on, the nation of Israel was moved into Egypt. You remember Joseph being the great leader of Egypt. His family comes down to Egypt. And Israel, the nation, grows in Egypt and stays there in bondage for quite some time until the deliverance of Moses. As then Moses leads Israel out of Egypt and begins to walk them back towards the promised land where they came from. 
Well, if you know the story, Moses dies on the border of seeing the promised land. And then it is Joshua who takes the nation of Israel and leads them into the promised land. And Joshua begins to break the backs of the inhabitants of the promised land. And then he, he allots each of the tribes a piece of land. And so now we come to Judges, and we are going to see that progression, how each tribe either gets their land or struggles through it. And that's going to be our story this morning. We will actually see the nation Israel individually struggle in the process of keeping land, gaining those promises that God had promised them long ago. One commentator says that what we're really going to see, because they're going into the land of Canaan, is the Canaanization of the people of God. Meaning, instead of Israel being completely separate from the people that they're going into take over, they begin to assimilate and act like the culture around them. Instead of changing the land they live in, they become like the people of the land. Hence, that's why he said the Canaanization of the people of Israel. So with that background, I hope that helps. Let's look at the story starting in verse 1, and we're going to read just the first two verses and then begin to talk about it. It says, Now it came about after the death of Joshua. The sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And let's stop right there. So the nation of Israel has the promised land, but they haven't attained every part that God has given them. And Joshua, the great leader, dies. And so they're standing around, so to speak, saying, who's going to lead us? Who's going to take us into battle? Who's going to be the one that steps up and leads us? And God answers them in verse 2, Judah meaning the tribe of Judah, shall go up, be, go up and fight for you. He will go because I've given him the land. Now, if you're like me, when you study the Bible, I'm always asking a lot of questions like why? What? What does that mean? Why, why Judah? If you, if you remember Judah, he's not even the firstborn of the nation of Israel. Judah is one of the 12 tribes. He's not the oldest. Why would he lead? Well, in verse 2, it says, God, well, God says he's going to lead, first of all, and that should be enough. But for me, I'm like, well, why does God say? I want to know the reason. And uh, I'll show you what I discovered just in a few moments. But first of all, God says, I've given it to him. I've given the land into his hand. Judah's the one that's going to be able to lead you, take over the land. God's already given it to him. Now you just have to go and get it. And that reminded me of that, of the song that we were singing. You know, it's like we see all these things, even though the Lord told us that we're going to have victory over sin, victory over this, and I'm going to be with you. Sometimes when we see what's going on, we start to get a little afraid, right? Just like we, we that song, I wish I could remember the lyrics. I always forget them when I'm up here teaching, you know, about, you know, God putting you, I guess, in the in that ocean song. You guys know what I'm saying? You're in that ocean and you want to keep your eyes above the waves, you know, because you want to keep your eyes on God and not look at the crazy things going on around you. And you'll see as we go through the book of Judges, Israel constantly does that. And, they're, and we're no different. We constantly do that as well. So why Judah? Again, they were not the oldest, but God nevertheless decided 
to say, Judah's going to lead you. Well, turn back with me to the book of Genesis and look at Genesis chapter 49, because this is a prophecy that Judah's father gave him. It's Genesis 49, starting in verse 8. So Judah was the name of one of the sons of Jacob, who was named Israel. And now we have in Joshua the tribe of Judah, meaning they came from Judah. So before uh, Jacob dies, he calls his sons and he prophesies over them, gives them a a blessing. And this is the blessing he gives to Judah. 49 verse 8 says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you, to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who dare rouses him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey colt to the choice vine. And he washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Now, we don't have time to go into describe and and talk about all of that. But do you see the point of Jacob's prophecy? Now, Judah might not be like, what are you talking about, Dad? But the prophecy is that you're going to be a leader amongst your brothers. And we see that happening now here in Joshua. And not only that, did you notice he said the scepter shall never depart from you? Meaning he's going to be royalty. And not only that, I think there's an allusion there to the coming of Jesus Christ when he says, until Shiloh comes. And again, I'm not... Uh, here to uh, exposit this text, but I want you to notice that I think there's an allusion to the death of Christ when he says his, he washes his garments in wine and his robe in the blood of grapes. I'm not here to debate that, but I just think maybe that's a, a small allusion, a hint, a foreshadow of what's going to happen to one of the descendants of Judah. So here again, Judah is prophesied to be a great leader amongst his brothers by his father. And in Numbers chapter 10, verse 14, there's something else I want you to I want to point out about Judah. It's a few books over Numbers 10, verse 14. Judah was going to lead all the tribes, as they wandered through the wilderness. They were out front. Look at what it says in in Numbers chapter 10, verse 14. It says, The standard of the camp of the sons of Judah, according to the armies, set out first with Nashon, the son of Amminadab, over its army. So Judah was going to be the ones that lead their brothers through the wilderness. This is one of the ways that that prophecy that Jacob gave back in Genesis that was fulfilled. And again, here we see it in, in um, jo- uh, Judges. 
Again, it's a foreshadow as well and an illusion of a coming deliverer. Remember, King David, what tribe did King David come from? Judah. And all his sons in the southern, uh, the southern tribes came out of the tribe of Judah, obviously. They were, the scepter shall never depart. And what about the future king that was to come? Turn with me to the book of Micah, chapter 5, looking at verses 2 and 4. This is just a prophecy about the coming Messiah, who we know as Jesus. In Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 2, Micah says this, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler of Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Just again, foreshadowing the coming Messiah. And I couldn't help but think of a similar cry out, like, who's going to lead us? Back in Joshua, as we, our judges were looking, who's going to lead us? And it says Judah. In the book of Revelation, there's something similar that happens with the Apostle John. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, looking at verses 1 through 5. Look at what it says here. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven stars and a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. There in the book of Revelation, John's told Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's going to be the one that commences the latter-day fulfillment. Again, this is another area where Judah is uh, shown as fulfilling the prophecy back here in Genesis, or somebody from Judah, and obviously it's Jesus Christ. So, I hope that gives you a little bit of understanding. It helped me understand. Okay, why Judah? Well, it's a foreshadow of the coming deliverer, the one that's going to deliver from all things forever and for all eternity. And that's why I said these songs today were just so, they were, they just fit perfectly. Because we said, come, Lord Jesus, come. Right? And we even said the Lion of Judah. Just perfect, perfect songs for this message. So Jesus, as you know, is the coming deliverer. Well, let's go back to our text now and see what happens as Israel cries out, who's going to help us? Who's going to lead us? Who's going to fight for us? 
And God says it's going to be Judah. Look at verse 3. We're going to see that Judah and Simeon capture their land now. Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I, in turn, will go with you into the territory allotted you. So Simeon went with him. Now, just so you know, these are tribes. When it says Simeon, it's the tribe of Simeon. Or Judah, it's the tribe of Judah. It's not just one person. So Simeon went with him. Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek, which means the Lord of Bezek, in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Yeah. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. So here we get the a victory, actually. It's, it's going to start off good, and it's quickly going to descend and go downhill, unfortunately, for the nation of Israel. But they defeat the Canaanites and the Perizzites in the northern part of the land, right? But I want you to note something. What they did is they tortured the king, right? Instead of just, they, didn't, they chased him down, they cut off his thumbs, and his toes, which was an ancient practice that used to happen, right? Or imagine having no thumbs and trying to do things. When you cut off your big toe, you begin to lose your balance. And so they did that with him. But they tortured him by doing that. God didn't say to do that. And God didn't say to bring him back to the land either. But Judah did that. They violated God's commands there. It reminded me of a similar thing that happened later in the history of Israel, Remember when King Saul also made the same mistake of not following out God's commands or God's orders. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 8 through 11, let me read that to you. Samuel was told to destroy all the inhabitants of the land. But unfortunately, he did not. He didn't obey God completely. And this is what is said of Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 8. It says, He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed. They were just supposed to destroy everything, but they said, you know what, that looks kind of good, we're going to keep that. For ourselves. And verse 10 says, And the word of the Lord came to Samuel, who was the judge of the day, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and he has, carried, and he has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. So Israel didn't learn from their past. They repeated another king or deliverer or leader followed the same mistakes. They decided not to carry out God's commands completely and got themselves in a little bit of trouble. So, back to our text now. Let's look at the rest of the verses here in verse 8 and verse 10. 
So Judah, as I said, they completely captured this land, the northern parts. Then they started to falter a little bit. They didn't follow God's commands. In verses 8 and 10, they, start, they begin to capture a little more land. Look at what it says. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set fire on the city. Afterwards, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. So Judah went about, excuse me, went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly was Kirath Arba, and they struck Shishai and Ahaman and Talmai. So just some more victories, some more battles that are won by Judah and Simeon. Now let's skip down a little bit here and, and look at the, the remaining land that they partially capture. And go all the way down to verse 19, and we'll begin there. And we're going to look at verses 19 through 21. Because you're going to find out that they do not completely drive out all the inhabitants. Look at verse 19. Now the Lord was with Judah. So that should be number one. God's with you. Okay. Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country. It's, it's always bad when Scripture goes, but... Usually, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Now, God was with them, we just read, but they could not drive the people out because they had iron chariots or superior technology. Again, I'll I'll allude to this in a moment. Israel has their eyes on the enemy instead of God. Well, look how great they are. Look how numerous they are. That problem's too big. We can't do it. But if you remember, God is with you. Verse 20, then they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had promised. And he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. And here's another misstep. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem until this day. So let's look at two things. Number one, Judah doesn't completely take over the land because, hey, these guys have superior technology. It's not that they couldn't do it. Well, they couldn't do it if they trusted in themselves. But couldn't God have done that? Didn't God already promise them that they were going to inherit the land? Didn't God promise Abraham back in Genesis that you guys are going to completely take the land? And here's his descendants many years later who are saying, well, they're stronger, they're bigger, they're more powerful, they're more numerous, they have superior technology. Again, sometimes our sight prevents God from moving in us because we stop moving. And they did not drive out the Jebusites as well as we saw in verse 21. And at the time of this writing, it says that even until this day, the Jebusites remained with the sons of Israel. So they coexisted together. Maybe Simeon had that bumper sticker that says coexist with the Jebusites. I don't know. But they didn't drive them out. They allowed them to stay there. So we're going to stop right there with our text and let's. I want to point out a few things that I think are important. And 
if you're like me, as I, as I said earlier, I ask why a lot when I'm studying. And some people have a problem with the Old Testament because they, why would God tell the nation of Israel to destroy everybody? Why would God do that? Is, is God some mean God of the Old Testament in the New Testament? He changes? Or is God the same yesterday, today, and forever? How do you answer that if people have asked you? Is God a war-hungry deity? Is, I have a book called, Is God a Moral Monster? Where people ask, how could God command the genocide of man, women, and children? Innocent children. And we read about it, right? If you've read the Old Testament, you see some things that you might not, at first you might cringe and go, why would God do that? What is going on? Why is God having these deliverers come into a land and destroy the Canaanites? Who are living there peaceably. Well, they're not peaceably. Let me just just point out a few things before we go into time of application. You see, the inhabitants of the land of Canaan have have been living in that land for more than 430 years. And they've been pretty immoral. If you were to go back in Genesis, the reason why Abram didn't inhabit the land of Canaan, it says, is because... The sins of the Canaanites have not fully been completed. God was allowing some time to, one, either see if the Canaanites would repent of their sins or they would continue. And so 430 years from the time of Abram until now, God's left them alone. God has not rained judgment on them. God is slow to anger and wrath. Sometimes we forget that when we read scriptures because it looks like it just happens right then and there. It's in the next chapter. It must have happened the next day. No, God was patient with the Canaanites, even a pagan country. And they were not, or pagan people, they were not innocent. God, again, was waiting for them to relent. And so let me just tell you a little bit about the Canaanites here, with not getting too graphic, is that they worshiped a pantheon of immoral gods and goddesses. And that's why the people of the land acted like They're gods, just like we are told to be holy like our God. Pagans at that time were acting like their gods, and their gods engaged in all kinds of sexual sin, from incest, adultery, bestiality, and homosexuality. And so they partook in those sexual sins as well. They engaged in child sacrifice and violence. So the Canaanites weren't that innocent. They were doing things that were evil, and God had relented and not judged them for a long time, but now their sin was complete, and now it was time for them to be judged, and God was using the the nation of Israel to do that. Also, I want to point out that many believe that the writers of these accounts, they use contemporary language of the time. It's called contemporary warfare rhetoric or hyperbole. So they used the language of the day when they were conveying their message. For example, Joshua says that he captured, in the book of Joshua, that he captured all the land and all the kings, and they were all defeated. All the Canaanites were defeated. Well, obviously they weren't all defeated because here they are again in Joshua. If every Canaanite was defeated, then there would be none to talk about here, excuse me, in the book of Judges, would there? So was Joshua lying? Was he deceiving us? Or was he using, again, what's called 
contemporary warfare rhetoric. It's like saying, we slaughtered that team. Did you literally slaughter them or did you beat them pretty bad? We killed them. We destroyed them. So many commentators say that's what's happening here in the Old Testament. Because, again, the Canaanites pop up again later. So Joshua, we would believe, isn't lying. He's exaggerating a bit for effect, rhetoric, hyperbole. God's greater concern for the nation of Israel as they move into these lands is not so much the people themselves, but it is the worship that they partake in. God's greater concern is not for the destruction of those people, but for the destruction of false worship. And let me give you an example. Turn with me to the book of Exodus in chapter 34. In Exodus chapter 34, now this is way before Israel moves into the promised land. And so God is directing them and giving them a covenant that says, hey, before you go into the land and when you get there, this is what you are to do and what you are not to do. And so we're seeing now in the book of Judges, being, seeing that played out. So in Exodus chapter 34, look at verse 12. This is when Moses was around. So God says he's going to drive out the Amorites in verse 11 and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. God's going to drive them out, just get them out of the land. Doesn't say he's going to destroy them totally. Now, he could mean that. But even in Judges chapter 1, we see that Israel drove them out, drove them out. Remember, they had to go chase the Lord of Bezek and bring him back. They should have just let him go, but they didn't. In verse 12, God says this, Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. Now, if you're going to destroy everybody, there's not going to be anybody left to make a covenant with, is there? Verse 12, but rather you are to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land that you would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take the sons of his daughters and your sons and his daughters may play the harlot with with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You see, God wants to keep the nation Israel spiritually pure. So again, it's not so much that you need to destroy those people, but you need to destroy the false worship. And if you happen to live amongst them, don't make a covenant with them. Don't partake uh of their culture. Don't give your daughter to their sons and don't give your sons to their daughters. Why? Because they're going to lead you astray. That's why even today in the New Testament, it talks about not being unequally yoked. What does light have to do with darkness? Why would you as a believer want to date or go out with a non-believer? Well, because they look good. Right? I don't know. But the point is being, hey, you're going to stumble. It's, it's too easy to go back to your old nature. And God is trying to preserve the purity of the nation of Israel. And that's why he has all these purity laws 
that, you know, that are in the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He's trying to keep the nation pure. And he goes, when you go into this new culture that you're going to go into, don't mingle with them. Don't adapt their ways. Don't adapt their worship. As a matter of fact, he says, destroy it. Cut it down. Get rid of it. Again, not the people, but the worship. And go one more. Let me show you one more thing in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Uh, chapter 12, I'm sorry, verses 2 and 3. So Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law of Moses before they go into the land. Before you go into the promised land, he's reminding them. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 2 says this, You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall, excuse me, of all the nations who shall dispose who you shall dis? I'm, I can't read this morning. Hold on. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispose serves their gods on the high mountain, and on, or excuse me, dispossesses serves their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and burn their asherim with fire. And you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this towards the Lord your God. Again, he wants you to utterly destroy it. If you remember the book of Kings, when we went through Kings last year, every time a king would come in, they would burn, or the good ones at least, they would destroy all the idols and false worship and cut them down. But it, and then at the end, they would always say, but they left the high places. There was always something that they still didn't cut down there's one little piece that they would either compromise or leave there for some reason and it always became a snare and that's why god is saying you utterly and completely destroy false worship don't even give it an inch into your life and so i hope that helps you understand a little bit about the way god acted in the old testament with the nation of israel so with all that said what application can we take from this this morning? Well, I just want to point out two things. Number one, remember for each and every one of us that Judah will go before us and conquer. And who's that Judah? That's Jesus Christ, our deliverer. Jesus Christ has already gone out for us. He's fighting for us. Do you trust him? Do you trust that Jesus is fighting for you, that he's going out in front of you? Are you completely reliant upon his work on the cross to defeat your sinfulness and guilt before God? Or are you trying to do it yourself? So that's one thing to remember, that Judah will go before us. He's going to be our deliverer. But also Jesus has already conquered the enemy for us, we are told. And you might be thinking, well, if he's conquered the enemy, then why do we struggle? Why do I continually struggle with sin? Why does this world continue to beat us down and looks like it's getting worse and worse all the time? Why does evil seem to be triumphing in this world? If Jesus has already conquered the enemy, then why are these things continuing to happen? And it looks like it's progressing and getting worse and quicker and quicker each day. Especially if you watch the news. 
Why does evil seem to triumph if Jesus has already conquered the enemy? So what's the answer? Well, if you think about it this way, think of how God protects us every day. It's, if you think about it, how many times could we have already fallen into sinfulness that destroys us, destroys our reputation, destroys our walk? How many times have we prevented from getting injured or sick or dying? We tend to forget that, and I do too. How much God blesses us on every, on every occasion and every day. Or how come I haven't already fallen to you know, Satan's temptation totally and fallen away from the faith? Because God preserves, God keeps his people. Think of how often God saves us from ourselves every day. You see, our victory is not primarily in this temporal world, but it's the eternal victory that we are guaranteed. And I know you're like, well, I want a temple one once in a while. <laughs> I want to see it here and now. Well, again, I, I hope you understand you get victory every day. Every day you breathe, every day you wake up, every day your kids come home safe. That's victory. We tend to forget that. We tend to forget what's really going on out there in this world. Let me show you this. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. We're going to stay here for the rest of this morning. You're all, well, I thought you said we were closing, but okay. (laughs) Revelation 12, starting in verse 7. This is kind of like, This is God pulling back the curtains and allows us to see what spiritually is happening. And this really helps me with understanding what's going on today. Why does it look like this? When Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse uh, 7, you see, I believe this is the spiritual battle that has been taking place since Christ's coming and resurrection at his first advent. And it says this, and there was a war in heaven. So he's using apocalyptic imagery to explain to us what's going on. There's a war in heaven, and Michael and his archangels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no place, excuse me, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world, And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night. I believe when that happened was when Satan was defeated on the cross. In a certain way, he no longer was able to stand before heaven and try to stop and prevent Jesus from dying on the cross. And so he was thrown down to the earth. It says, and they, and, they says, and so he's the accuser of our brethren, has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of the testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. 
For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. That short time began when Christ rose again, defeated Satan on the cross. Satan knows he has a short time now until total victory is accomplished. And so that's why for this whole church age, he's present. And what is he doing? He's trying to destroy the church. And verse 11 tells us that they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, first and foremost because of what Jesus has done, and the word of their testimony, their faithfulness, and they did not love their life when faced with death. That their walk with God was more important than anything else, even if it means dying. And look at verse 13. It kind of elaborates on it a little bit more. It says, And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a times from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of its mouth. This is God protecting believing Israel. I believe that the believing Israel is that woman and God is protecting them. And so what does the dragon do? So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children. And I believe that is the believers, the believing church. That he's making war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on right now. Satan is out to destroy the church and he will do whatever he can to complete that. If it means changing policies in, in the government, if it means all-out persecution, he will do it. Whatever, if it means joining the church, infiltrating the church, changing doctrines, it doesn't matter. This is what is going on in our world, and we need to realize it. So what do we need to do? We need to keep the commandments of God and hold on to the testimony of Jesus and not love our lives, even if it means facing death, not compromising which is my last point here. We must daily drive out the enemy from our life, like Judah, like Simeon began to do. Don't give up. Satan is coming, and he's never going to stop. He knows that his time is short, and whatever he can do to you, to me, to the church worldwide, he is going to do. And our job, even though Jesus Christ has already secured victory, we have our part is to never give up. Remember in verse 11, it says they overcame him in, in Revelation 12. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. That we have a part in it as well. So again, we must daily drive out our enemy from our life by not giving up and not settling for partial victories. As we'll see in Judges, Israel constantly settles for partial victories. Well... We got enough, and their iron chariots are a little too strong, so we'll let them stay. Or remember Simeon, when they defeated the Jebusites, they, they went into the, well, they didn't even defeat them. They moved into the land, and they let the Jebusites stay in the land. 
hey, you can have the land and we can have the land. They can coexist. And as we'll see later on in Judges, that's going to be a problem. Don't settle for partial victories in your life. Go for complete victory, complete deliverance. And lastly, ask for help from your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Remember in our text, Judah was going to lead them. What did they do? They went and asked Simeon for help. And they said, hey, Simeon, when you go for your land, we're going to help you. And that's what they did. And you even see that back in the book of Joshua. Each of the tribes helped each other overcome the enemy. And we in church, if you're struggling with sin, something's going on, get someone to help you, be accountable, help you overcome that struggle, that sin, whatever the case may be. Ask for help. You don't have to do it alone. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord here to help each other grow in Christ, win victories over sin and temptation or whatever the case may be. So again, the applications, remember that Judah will go before us and conquer. And number two, we must daily drive out the enemy from our life. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so thankful that we have you fighting for us, that you go before us and have already conquered and defeated Satan. And Lord God, even though he has a short time, he is powerful and strong still and trying to make us fall. May we trust in you, hope in you, rely on you for our strength. And may we hold fast to our testimony. And may we not give up or give in or relent from pursuing after you. Because our enemy does not rest. As a matter of fact, we're told that he roams around as a lion looking whom he may devour. And Lord, we usually fall into into a sin when we are resting or giving up or compromising a little bit. And it is hard to follow after you completely 24-7, Lord God. But help us to do that. Help us to strive for it every day, a little more and a little more. And when we need help, we would call out to our brothers and sisters and ask for help. But first and foremost, we cry out to you, Lord God, our deliverer the line of the tribe of Judah who's defeated Satan and has secured victory for us. May we trust in you. I pray that you would help each and every believer in this room to hold fast to their testimony, even if it means to the point of death. May we remain strong, for we know one day soon you are coming back to receive us into yourself, Lord God. And as we sung earlier, we do pray that you would come, Lord Jesus, But before that time, may you come into the lives of every man and woman who does not know you, our friends and our family who would be lost for eternity if you were to come today because they don't know you. Lord God, may you soften their hearts. May you open their eyes and their ears that they would hear you and see their need for you, that they need Judah to deliver them. And we pray all this in your mighty name. Amen.